Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, 14 days and counting. I want to welcome you to uh, part three of our special series, Rediscovering the Nativity. I'm, uh, I'm Pastor Tim, and we've been uh, discussing how many of us kind of need a holiday reboot around this time of year. Just kind of a jump start to see the miracle of Christmas through fresh lenses. Uh, maybe you were shopping this weekend. Anyone go shopping? Okay. Crowds kind of just crushing in on you, or you're doing that online this year, and you're like, you're wondering how you're actually going to pay for all that stuff. Um, yesterday at our house, we decorated our tree. Uh, which, was, which was kind of fun, full of joy. Uh, my little boy, two and a half years old, he dropped five ornaments. Uh, and the first one was like okay with me. It was like this pink ceramic ball, which I was like, you know, I don't put a pink you know, ball on your thing. So I was, he's like, you know, pop in. He's like, sorry, daddy. And I was, like, I was like, it's all right, man. But the second one, my pinstriped New York Yankees commemorative edition <laughs> ball. And I just looked and like everyone froze. And, you know, and I, I, I like grabbed that box of ornaments right out of his hand. I was like, no decorations for you. And, uh, you know, like a holiday Nazi. But my, uh, my, my wife was like, you know, he's two and a half years old. Let him just experience the joy, you know, and the fun. And uh, so I, you know, I gave it back. And in a span of like literally 20 minutes, psh, 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 he dropped three more. Crash, smash, crunch. It was like the sound of the whole day was glass ornaments underfoot. Uh, each one, you know, I just looked at my wife, you know, with a, with a dustpan in my hand. I was like, joy, you know, here you go. Uh, Christmas can easily become a manic and, you know, joyless affair, just, just busyness and grief. And the miracle kind of gets crowded out. So what we're doing is using these weeks leading up to Christmas to just kind of take our time to re-examine the story of Christ's birth from the original text. We're going to the Gospels of Luke and Matthew just to kind of renew our sense of wonder, of awe for what Christmas really means. Um, that word even, Christ, Mass, the night that God drew near and improbably became one of us. Uh, and last week, I, I showed you my nativity scene, right? The cool little set that my kids play with under our tree. Um, you know, you can see them right here. You can see the, uh, well, you can see the, you know, <laughs> the little sheep who is now a, a three-legged sheep. Uh, you know, you kind of have to, like, you know, take them out back and, and, and put them out of misery, I guess. Um, but you see them all there. Uh, you know, the, 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 most of the figurines are, are, are recognizable. We looked at, at Mary um, last week, right? Mary, and, and you can see they're kind of carved out of wood, no face on them. Um, the three wise men, the magi, actually, who were there. They're, they, actually, they were not kings. Did you know that? They were likely three Persian royal scholars from, actually, from Persia who came to see Jesus. We'll talk about them next week. But it's this tall guy, actually, who kind of, who kind of um, you know, who's gazing down at the young boy and her you know, mom, um, gets our attention. Because although he's the biggest figure in this nativity, he tends to be the one most overlooked. Because he actually, in many ways, people are like, well, he plays the smallest part. I mean, Mary is central. I mean, she's the mother of Jesus. And Jesus himself, say no more. Um, the Magi, you know, they followed this... This star across the desert, you know, to worship the newborn king, they're iconic. But Joseph is kind of, well, I don't know, forgotten. I mean, he doesn't really seem to do much. And in fact, scripture doesn't tell us very much about him. There are actually only a handful of verses in Matthew that give us a little insight into who he was and the role that God chose him to play. I mean, some of you actually probably know maybe a detail or two about him. Like, you probably know what his trade was or his job was, maybe, some of you. He was a carpenter. But do do you know anything else? And any other details? We, we actually don't even know how long Joseph lived in his role as Jesus' earthly father. He actually is last mentioned when Jesus is 12 years old, and we never hear from him again after that in all of Scripture. But don't be fooled. Because although Joseph is overlooked often in the sequence of miraculous events that surround Christmas, he is no ordinary Joe. That's kind of the title that we're using here. I mean, in fact, if you take a closer look at what Scripture does tell us about him and kind of unpack it, you're going to discover there's a reason that God handpicked a working-class, blue-collar kind of guy to be his son's earthly father. I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25. And uh, you can pass out the Bibles. There's some in the pew. Mike's going to be turning the lights on so we can actually see a little bit in here. That'd be great. And um, we're going to make sure that uh, you get a look at this. Last week, we... um, looked actually at the book of Luke, which gave the nativity story from Mary's perspective. And in our study of Luke, we discovered that Mary had a number of strikes against her. She was young, she was a female, she was poor and oppressed, and yet God didn't choose Mary in spite of her insignificance, but rather because of it. 
which tells us something important about the heart of our God. So that's Mary's perspective in Luke. But in looking at this experience from Joseph's point of view, in Matthew, I think you're going to discover another facet of God's heart for ordinary people, like you, people like me, that give us a reason for great hope and much joy. Let's actually look at this together. This is uh, Matthew chapter 1. We'll start at verse 18 and look through verse 25 here, okay? This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together... She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. And we'll stop there. Um, as I said, whenever we read an account like this, we tend to breeze over Joseph's role. I mean, I mean, it's, actually, it's easily overlooked. But consider this for a moment. Things, consider it from his perspective, okay? If you were here last week, you know we learned. It's kind of scandalous. But Mary was only how old at this time? Anyone? Yeah, between 12 and 14 probably at the time of their engagement. Which means Joseph was likely just a teenager himself, maybe 15 or 16. 17 or 18, if he was married at the average age that most young Jewish males were in the first century. So the Christmas story actually begins with God selecting, most improbably, two kids. (laughs) Teenagers. Inexperienced. No power, no position to speak of. And one day, they're like thrust into this unlikely scenario. See, now here's the thing. You can't idealize this thing because you're like, oh, it's kind of like like Romeo and Juliet. You know, love-cross teenagers. No. These are not two young lovebirds that, that God chose or something. It's not accurate. Verse 18 says that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Which means, actually, that they were engaged. But it doesn't follow. It's not like American engagement. Like, oh, they were in love. They went out for like three years. Went to Chili's every Friday and they fell for one another. Nothing like that. Not even close. According to Jewish custom, it was the parents of the young man who would choose the young woman to be engaged to their son in an arranged marriage. But when the parents agreed it was a good match... Then the kids went into the second stage of engagement, which is called betrothal, which was nothing like we think, like, you know, engagement, like, oh, all alone on the beach, down on one knee, nothing like that. It was a public affair. It was actually kind of like an ancient prenuptial agreement that they swore before witnesses. They would have called the neighbors in, the leaders in their village, and actually entered into this legally binding contract. And it would have given the man actually legal rights over the woman. And it would have only been broken through one of two things, death or Divorce, but sex was not permitted at all, and they spent a year in this betrothal period. The boy and the girl actually would refer to one another as my husband, as my wife. They weren't living together. They weren't having sex. They spent a full year in this engagement period. And so when Matthew says Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, it means they had likely been paired together by their parents. They swore to be married in one year's time. So I want you to imagine this. Two young teenagers thrust into the pressure cooker of a marriage contract. They may not even have known each other well. I mean, love was a luxury. To give us a little insight into the emotional framing of this setting, check out this betrothal scene from the Nativity story. The law says you will stay with us for another year. Then you will go into his house. You will consider him your husband now in all manner except that which leads to family. On that, you must wait. I'm building a house. Enough for a family. I love how Joseph tries to make a bridge marriage. He's like, I, I, I'm building a house. Uh, we, we will live in Bridgewater. Uh, and, and, 
and, you know, young Mary just kind of shoots him this look and just kind of walks out. It's like, welcome to marriage, Joe. Uh, you know, it's, it's not that she has anything against Joseph, but she's hardly thrilled about the idea of spending her life with a man that her parents decided that she's going to marry. Now, that's speculation, but in the movie, Mary and her friends are kind of seen playfully kind of flirting with another boy, yet Joseph is the one that her dad has chosen for her. Tough circumstances. Not just for Mary, but for Joseph as well. And what happens next likely would have turned his whole world upside down because this girl that his parents have chosen for him, whether or not she was happy about the situation, shows up one day with a swollen belly. And it's not gas. Second half of verse 18 says, um, before they came together, that means they'd consummate their marriage sexually. They had to wait for a year. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, any, any engaged couples here? Anyone engaged? Uh, yeah, no. Oh, a few people in the back. Engaged people. Awesome. Okay, great. Uh, what? Leave them a hand. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Men, I won't ask you to stand up and single you out, but I want you to imagine uh, tomorrow you get a call on your cell phone and your fiance is like, um, we got to talk. Um, and you go to meet her for coffee. She's like, I don't want to come to your house. Just meet me at, you know, St. Arbuck's. And you go, you know, and you meet her for a latte. And she's, like, been wearing bulky sweaters all fall. And now she opens her coat, and you see it. And it's unavoidable. Luke tells us that as soon as Mary found out that she was pregnant, she actually went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist, right? And when she returned from that trip... She was likely showing. In the nativity story, the screenwriters imagined for us what that must have been like for Joseph upon his fiancée's return to their town to see that and discover it for the first time. Joseph, Mary's back. Joseph. That look on his face says it all. It's like he can't even believe what he's seeing. And I know we all move to the, the personal, you know, humiliation of the scenario. Like, what has she done to me? Shock? Hurt? Probably just like confusion? Maybe outrage? Maybe fear? See, beyond the personal pain of, like, betrayal, like, I guess my parents didn't pick so well after all. There was a lot more loaded into this seemingly illegitimate pregnancy. See, because Joseph and Mary were engaged, legally bound, Mary's apparent unfaithfulness carried a severe social stigma. According to Jewish law, if you actually went back to Deuteronomy, Joseph had a right and an obligation to divorce her. Because that pledge of engagement was so serious, so binding, any sexual unfaithfulness was not considered fooling around. It was considered adultery. And on top of it, anyone know what the punishment for adultery was in first century Judaism? Stoning. You've been reading Deuteronomy again. (laughs) According to Deuteronomy 22 in the Old Testament, Jewish authorities could actually have the adulteress taken out to the gates of that town and stoned to death. So this is a crisis situation that this kid is thrust into. Now imagine this thrust on the shoulders of a teenage boy. How would he respond? I mean, imagine there are all sorts of options to consider. What would you do? <laughs> and some of us are just like, whoa, whew, cut her loose, you know? Goodbye, good luck, sweetheart, you know? You know, good, good, good luck. I'm, I'm, <laughs> good luck starting your rock collection. <laughs> Hard-heartedness. <laughs> or if Joseph actually had a soft heart... <laughs> Well, then this likely shattered it. Some of you know what that's like. Mary wasn't who 
he thought she was. I mean, when you're engaged, your mind is like filled with all kinds of dreams about what a future family might be like, about like how life with your husband or with your wife is going to be, and then this. Picture, picture that, if you will. What was that conversation like between a heartbroken young groom and the girl he hoped to spend his life with? Do you know the reason I chose you? I believed you were a woman of great virtue. I have lived my life seeking honor. Honor. Mary, so how am I to answer this? child is mine, I will be lying. I will have broken a law laid down by God. I would never ask you to lie. If I say this child is not mine, they will ask what I want to do. And if I accuse you, There is a will for this child, greater than my fear of what they may do. It's such a powerful scene for me because it's like it opens up this cross section of Joseph's heart. I believed you were a woman of great virtue. I've lived my life seeking honor. Mary, how am I to answer this? And you know I love accents no matter where you know. If I claim this child is my own, I will be lying. I'm breaking a law laid down by God. But if I say this child is not mine, they will ask me what I want to do if I accuse you. And his eyes just kind of drift off. Not in hardness, but in a sort of heartbreak. And the guy who plays Joseph is a young actor. He's named Oscar Isaac. I think he's absolutely incredible. He just gives Joseph this voice. Gives, gives him this depth of character to light in, in a way that we, we miss. We sometimes miss when we rush past these verses in Matthew. Joseph, I mean, he was a young man literally caught between a rock and a hard place. What would you do? I mean, what, what, let me ask you better yet. What do you do when you're hurt? When someone close to you has apparently betrayed you or humiliated you, like, in a, in a very public way? I mean, many of us, in the wake of personal wounding, wait, we get out our rock collection. We're going to get vindictive. We just start, like, warming up, like, here we go. But Joseph, and this is where the story turns, and the whole narrative, the entire gospel, 2,000 years, turns on this decision by a young boy who declines the road of payback or bitterness or vengeance. And he does something different, which I think gives us a hint as to why God hand-selected him to be Jesus' earthly father. Read verse 19 with me. Because Joseph, her husband, was a, let's say the word together, righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. You can circle that key word right there, righteous. Joseph was a righteous man. And again, we don't quite understand what that word means. You may not be familiar with it. Here's what it doesn't mean. It's not used in like a, a modern, like, you know, surfer sense. Like, dude, that was a righteous wave. Not now. <laughs> righteous means something else. If you look it up in a Greek lexicon, and you don't have to, I did, you discover... That the preferred translation means extreme honesty, justice of heart, goodness or nobility. And the point was that although Joseph, he was young, although he may have been hurt in the wake of public disgrace, he was a man of exceptional virtue, which actually has little to do with age or experience. It doesn't like you, you don't automatically like gain or grow in virtue simply by being chronologically older. Rather, you grow in virtue when you begin to believe and live out your life as if God's purposes, even though if you don't understand them, are truly greater than your own. And when you're hurt or you're embarrassed or you're wounded, you don't indulge the natural desire for revenge or bitterness. Rather, you respond in a way that is righteous, which has to do with justice and love. Kissing. Coming together in a way that balances justice and love extreme kindness, and extreme morality of heart. It's, it's determining first to do, what do I have to do that is right, and then deciding to do it in the right way, and that's hard. 
I mean, let's be blunt. When Mary told Joseph about her pregnancy, I mean, he knew the child wasn't his. Someone else was a child's father, no duh. And it must have been mind-boggling to him to accept that someone else was, who was it? Was it Toby? Toby the centurion? No. <laughs> it's God. What? <laughs> I, I mean, how would you, go ahead, engage men. How would you take that news tomorrow at Starbucks? It, God did this. God, we have a phrase in New Jersey, get out of here. Get out of here if you're from, you know, Long Island. God bless you. Um, Joseph was not from New Jersey or Long Island with a big attitude. He was a small town boy from Nazareth with a big heart. He was, according to scripture, a righteous man, which refers to character that is tempered and balanced by these two core attributes. On the one hand, justice, a conviction to live by principle and do what is right in God's eyes and no one else's. And on the other hand, to do it in a way that is exceptionally loving. You know what justice is, integrity, right? It's binding yourself to live a certain way. And in Joseph's case, God's word literally called for him to divorce her legally, to break the engagement with Mary for indecency. That was literally the charge she faced, and Joseph was bound to do that. And that must have broken Joseph's heart. But his commitment to follow God's law, no matter what the cost, brought him to this difficult decision. Divorce actually would not have been cruel. It was commanded by the Torah. That was a Jewish law. In the wake of sin or wrongdoing, apparently, there are consequences. But, and here's where Joseph shines. On the other hand, how is he going to do this? With exceptional kindness. Verse 19 reveals something incredible. Joseph had in mind to divorce her. How? What's the word? Quietly. Because he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. And when it says he wanted to divorce her quietly, that's not like, um, you know, Sopranos, like, I'll take care of the situation quietly. Okay? <laughs> In other words, Joseph, catch this, Joseph is the one who's wrong, he's the one who's shamed, he's the one publicly humiliated, and his response, and his confusion, his anger, and hurt, he's still thinking about who? Mary. Compassion. Not just how I can save face myself, but how can I save this girl that for better or for worse, I pledged to love. And he responds with this incredible sensitivity and discretion towards his fiance. He's been hurt, he's been sinned against, but that doesn't rule the day. He will be just. It's like, I will do what the law commands. I will, I, will, I will separate from her, but I will do it with exceptional kindness in a way that causes her the least amount of shame, damage, or hurt to her personally. Justice and love. This is the essence of what it means to be righteous. It's a commitment to do what is right required by law, but to do it the right way with compassion, discretion, and sensitivity. I mean... Think of this. He absorbed so much of the hurt, not wanting to expose Mary to public disgrace. That's, that's the opposite, to humiliation and judgment, to death by stoning, justice and love. When they kiss, that's how Joseph decides to respond. I mean, that's the essence of what it means to be righteous. Could it be, that be said of you? Ah, Lizzie was an, a righteous woman. Your life is lived with the highest commitment to moral integrity and honesty and goodness, and it's mingled with this otherworldly kindness and compassion. Folks, in that small nuance, that little loaded word of righteous, I think we get a glimpse of why God chose Joseph to be the earthly father of the Son of God. Why? Because in his righteous response to wrongdoing, Joseph reflects the heart of God the Father himself. One of the words all throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to New used to describe our God is the word righteous. And maybe that's a word you never really understood. It sounds kind of like religious-y, like, oh, yeah, righteous. We kind of sing that sometimes. Or maybe you've only heard it like in a negative context, like, oh, I don't like Rob. He's so self-righteous. You ever hear it that way? I want to rescue this word for a minute, just kind of dust it off from your preconceived notions and ask you to see the beauty of this. In Psalm 33, 5, we read this. It says, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing, what? Love. You see the connection? What is righteousness? It's the commingling of justice, a commitment to do what is always morally right, and to do it in the most loving way possible. Our God is righteous. Our God, the one who actually sent Jesus Christ into this world, is a righteous deity. Look at Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. In other words, the twin attributes of a heart that is purely, completely pure, totally untarnished, and yet is completely loving, other-focused. That's actually the foundation of God's throne or his character. That's what's saying. This is the essence of God. The Lord is righteous. In other words, his compassionate character binds him to do 
what is right, but do it in such a way that looks for our good and to always do it in that way that looks the best interest after the people that he loves. Now, that's abstraction. You're like, okay, righteousness, whatever. You want a real-life example of this? I can give you one with my, actually, my own earthly father. I've spoken of him before. Um, if there's anything true you could ever write, like on my dad's you know, tombstone someday, it would be, Del Lucas was a righteous man. And that's, that's a nice sentiment, but it wasn't so great when I was nine years old. Uh, we went on a uh, family vacation to Lake George. Anyone ever been to Lake George? Okay, up in the Adirondacks, great place. We went up there for a week's vacay one summer. We had this like big honker yellow station wagon. We called it the Lucas Family Banana Boat. You know, the wood paneling on the side, just a sweet ride. Uh, so mom and dad, me and my brother, we piled in the car. He was 14, I was 9. We went up there for a week. We rented a place out in Lake George. Beautiful, tons of fun. You know, rented a boat, swimming, eating out. It's like your classic you know, family summer vacay. We had a great time. But on the return trip home, we had what, what I'd like to refer to as like an, an incident. Um, we were on our way back, and we stopped at this gas station to refuel. I mean, you, know, you guys know I've been there. Lake George is like way up there in the Adirondacks, like six hours from here. And so we stop. We've been driving for a couple hours, and we stop at this gas station. It's one of those old-school jobbers. You know, it's not Exxon or, like, Texaco or any of the mainline biggies. It's like, you know, Jack's Royal J unleaded, <laughs> you know? And Jack was literally the guy who owned it and who operated it, you know? He sit, sat in the chair outside the main office kind of by this rundown Coke machine, and he, he was the guy who washed your windshields. Remember when they actually used to do that? They would actually wash your windshields, too? And so my dad stops the Lucas Van Banana boat to fill, the, to fill up the car. And my brother Ted and I, we get out to stretch and kind of walk around. So as my father's fueling up, he and Jack, I guess, the owner, they share a conversation by the pumps. And Ted and I, you know, again, he's about 14, 15 at the time, so I'm like nine. We go use the, you know, the restrooms and then, you know, kind of like start looking around. And we come around the corner by the office and we see this old school Coke machine on the side of the station by the washrooms. And it's this, this old, like, beater machine kind of faded by the sun. And, of course, we are like, Coca-Cola! You know, when you're 9 or 10, the world is divided into, like, candy and soda. You're searching for either one. So we go, you know, racing up to my dad. We're like, da 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 Stop talking to Jack. You know, please, please, please. we got to have a Coke. got to have a Coke. got to have a Coke. And he's like, he's like no, 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 no. Uh, your mother has, uh, has packed a nutritious lunch for you. Uh, you know, there's apple juices in a sippy. You know, like, wait, wait. And my brother and I look at each other, we're like, whatever. And so we, we go back to the machine right around the corner from the office. And, and you know how most soda machines nowadays, they have this, like, this plastic guard or, or lip at the bottom, like catch the soda, you know, where it come, where, you know, when it comes out? This didn't have one of those. The place where the can landed was like wide open. So my brother, he sizes this thing up, and he's a little bit of an instigator at the time. He's in finance now, it's appropriate. He's like, think you got your hand up that thing? I was like, no, I'm not put, putting my hand up. You put your hand up that thing, right? And so he's like, all right. So he, now he's 15, so his arm's like a little bit bigger, so he kind of gets, gets, you know, gets it jammed. He's like, I don't know, I can't reach, I can't reach, but I think we can probably get something. He's like, come on, come on, try. I was like, I'm, no, I'm not going to try. Try, okay, all right, try, try. You know, so I put my, roll my sleeve and everything, and, um, and, and it's like I start getting up, and guess what? Tim's arm was just right. It was, it was not the rippling mass of uber man muscle you see today, okay? And so, so we get this thing like kind of up there, and I, and I was scrawny, I kind of fit my hand right there, and, and I feel this like lever, and I was like, what is this thing? And I, and, and I goose the Coke machine. And, uh, and all of a sudden, ka-ching! And he's like, pull out, pull out, pull out, pull out. So I pull it out, and what is it? The new Coke. And I was like, oh my gosh. At first I was scared, because I was like, this thing's going to chew my hand off, but boom, one comes out, and he goes, he goes, Go again. I was like, all right, hold this. Another one up there, right? Right, right up the skirt. Boom. And ching right? And another comes out. And we got two Cokes now. And we, like, look at each other, like, wide-eyed. And he's like, he's like, all right, dude, roll up your sleeves. I was like, okay, you got it, man. And suddenly, I get the third one, and I turn around, and Ted's gone. Where is he? He's gone. He's, where, I was like, where, where the heck did he disappear to? I think this is where, like, his financial acumen kicked in. It's a hedge fund guy today. He comes racing back around the corner. He's got this huge plastic milk crate. He's like, let's go. He's got this milk crate, actually. He's like, let her rip, man. And I go back to her, ka-ching, 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 touching the magic lever. Out come the cans. It's like a slot machine of soda, man. It's like a nine-year-old's dream. And we, we drained that thing, man, of like 10 Coke cans. And when that ran out, we were like, oh, man. And we're like, is there any other soda? And then we looked down the dials and everything. And what's it got on there? We're like, sun-kissed orange soda. So, right, so I get up there and everything. And we keep pushing the button while I'm hitting this time. And out comes sun-kissed, which is like, you know, orange soda is like, whoo, and, uh, and we fill up the milk crate with another 12 things of orange. So we got like 22 cans of soda, and we're like laughing and giddy, like, we found gold, you know? And we're like, and then we hear the voice, right? Here, boys, where are you guys? Come on, we're leaving. And my brother, again, he of the criminal mind, he just goes, get over here. He opens up my sweatpants and starts jamming them in. 
starts jamming them in. Inside of my legs, he's like, roll up your thing. Puts it in my socks and everything. I'm like, what are you doing? I can't walk. He's like, wait here. He goes back to the station wagon and he gets our sweatshirts. Now, mind you, this is like August. So he gets our sweatshirts. He comes around, put these on, you know, put the hood up and everything. He starts stuffing them in the, in the pockets and everything. And he got it, you know, and we both do this thing. And like, we, we literally walk back to the, you know, the, the family station wagon, you know, like real nonchalantly, like, hey, dad, you know. <laughs> And we, for whatever reason, we get in there kind of in a rush. We hit the road again, and me and Ted are in the back seat with our booty of Coke cans, you know. And mom and dad are in the front, radio's on, and we're just like, <laughs> you know, just sucking these things down. One after another, like we've never tasted soda before. He's like, the elixir of the gods. So I could just start doing this thing. And as you can imagine, that about, oh, say, I don't know, an hour 45 later, <laughs> we've drunk about eight sodas apiece. And it starts becoming evident to my dad, like, in the rear view, like, something's up. You, you know what happens to a nine-year-old when you got, like, 12 liters of, like, sun kiss pumping in your veins? <laughs> Me and my brothers are, like, bouncing off the ceiling of the car. Like, all just laughing, like, all hyped up, totally tanked on sun-kissed and coke. And my brother's, like, wriggling. He's, like, he's got to pee so bad. And, and I'm just, like, just nervous. I'm, like, dad will be there. You know, tell them. And my dad and mom, they're, like, look at each other. My dad looks in the rear view, pulls over, comes to back, pulls over. He literally, you know, we're, like, oh, gosh, here come the hazards. He puts the hazards on. And he comes, gets out, and he comes around the back, and we're just, you know, sitting there, like, <laughs> and he goes, roll it down, roll it down. And we, you know, roll it down, and we got them all covered, and he goes, what's going on back here? And me and Ted, you know, innocently, just like, nothing, you know, just like totally jammed up. And, uh, and he opens the side door. And I'll never forget this. 17 empty Coke and Sunkiss cans all over the highway, jigs up. Now check this out. What does my dad do? He looks at us. He looks at all these cans all over the highway. And he literally starts bending down and picking them up. We're not laughing. He's not yelling. There's just like silence. And he's picking them all up. He's got like about, you know, 13 or 14, you know, in his arms. And he's like, Elaine, this is my mom. He's like, Elaine, do we have anything to put these in? And my brother's like, "Uh, we got a milk crate back here, you know. (laughs) And, uh, And he proceeds to load up the car. And he signals left. And in the middle of the highway, he pulls a Yui and turns around and drives two and a half hours back to the gas station. Not a word. And we were like, he's, he's not really going to do this. Is he? He's not really going to do this. Oh, yeah, he was. Complete silence. It was like the most terrifying two and a half hours of my life. Like, what is going to happen to us? Well, we pull into Jack's Circle J, you know, on Leaded Gas Station. And my dad lets us out. He takes us by the hand, and he's like, wait here. And he goes over with this milk crate of empties. And we can see him talking with Jack, who this old guy is kind of like looks over my dad's shoulder and like <laughs> squints at us. And my dad walks over back to us, and he goes, come on, boys. because time to make it right. And he takes us by the hand in front of Jack, who, who, you know, this is a little bit, you know, deliverance. He had like the beard, the overalls, kind of a backwoods guy. And my dad goes, my dad goes, my sons have, uh, have something to tell you. And um, Ted, you want to go first? He's like the oldest. And my brother's like, um, you, know, we re- you know, we really like soda. And like, you know, <laughs> you know and he's like, tell him, tell him. I was like, we took your soda. I'm sorry. We're so, so sorry. I'm like the more penitent one. And, you know, my brother like, you know, thank, you know thanks a lot. He's like, yeah, my, my brother couldn't help himself. He just put his hand right up their thing. And, you know, and just kind of, and, and, and my dad is like, no, but boy, you know, and, 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 and Jack goes, you know, he's looking at us and everything. And my dad goes, how much do they owe you? And Jack is like 35 cents a piece. Now, this was back in the day, right? <laughs> And then, and, 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 and then he sees that, like, some of them are star-kissed, and he's like, you took the star-kissed, sun-kissed, too, because that's my favorite. And we're like, oh, man. And he goes inside the office, gets out this little, you know, calculator, and he rings it up, and it's like $17. And my brother and I are, like, going to puke. We're going to sick, because it might as well have been $17,000. We didn't have a penny. And Jack comes, and he gives us the receipt, and he goes, you guys going to pay for it, or are you going to work for it? I tell you, when you're nine years old, man, and he let us wriggle there for a moment, my dad didn't say anything. And my dad steps in and says, actually, I'll be paying for it. I'm sorry, you, sir. Sorry for your trouble. My boys here, my sons, are still learning to be men. And you can imagine the awkwardness and the silence as he took our hands and walked us back to the car. My father is a righteous 
man. He could have asked us, he could have shamed us and said, pull down your pants, boys, show them. Show them what you've got in there. All those cans. He could have taken off his balance and said, pull off your pants, I'm going to whip you right here. But he was, he was determined to show us what integrity was about. But do it in the most loving way possible where it actually he would pay the debt of actually driving two and a half hours out of his way and then two and a half back just to get where we were. And so that his sons would grow and begin understanding something about character. And it was one of the most powerful lessons of my childhood. We drove home in like total silence the rest of that trip. And um, my dad cashed in on it in the next day when we were finally home. He like sat us down and he was like, you, you boys understand what character is? And, and, and my brother's like, yeah, I know we're characters. I know, I know, you know. It's like, no, no, no. He goes, character is what you do when no one else is watching. But what impressed me about his response to the coke caper is that the balance that it took to temper justice on the one hand, to do what is right with love, see our greater good. He didn't whip us. He didn't didn't make us work there, drop us off, and come back a week later. He said, I'll pay the debt because these are my sons. It's my children. Although they're not doing the right thing now, I love them, and I'll pay. That's love. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, God. Love and faithfulness go before you. Do you see how they're linked? That is the character of our Father God, completely righteous, both both just where there's sin, there's consequences, someone's got to pay for it and loving, at the same time responding in compassion and care and understanding, all in an effort to lead to restoration and healing and growth. Joseph was a righteous man. And in the wake of being wronged, he responded with both justice and love. And this, he was willing to share in the shame of the one that he was committed to. If you go back to our text, look at verse 20 there, Matthew one twenty. Pick up with me here, it says... But after Joseph considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. After Joseph responded to Mary with such sensitivity and compassion, God gives him an insight. And the word he was given is that things, Joseph, are not as they appear. Mary is actually telling the truth. And I, God, have hand-selected you to serve as the earthly father to my son, Jesus, the Christ, the Savior of this whole world. And I don't, you know, I don't know if it was the, the angelic announcement that did it or if it was Joseph's. I suspect it was his faith and his character. But he obeyed, like, immediately when he heard it from God. This boy, this teenage kid, took God at his word and made probably the most difficult and unpopular decisions that would actually make his life more inconvenient, more painful, and more difficult, but it would be of exceptional worth in God's overall plan to show his love to mankind. Mary. And you shall call his name Jesus. save his people from their sins. And whom Mary God showed me, an angel came to me, my dream. You believe me? I believe you. Your child will need a father. I will declare him as my own. People, they will not look at you the same. They will not look at us the same. You are my wife. I am your husband. That is all anyone need know. 
justice tempered with mercy results in one thing, obedience. <laughs> and when he said, I will, I will publicly identify you with you and be your husband, he's saying, Mary, you will not be alone in this. I will share your shame. And sure enough, at every turn, whether, you know, dealing with the disapproving stares of the locals in Nazareth, the dangers on their road to Bethlehem, or the threat of giving birth without a birthplace, Joseph is shown throughout the Gospels to be the watchful and faithful protector of his wife and her unborn son. One of the movie's best moments comes like when Joseph is leading Mary and their donkey past the disapproving neighbors as they kind of leave Nazareth, and they're like shooting like laser beams out of their eyes kind of at them. And Joseph is like, yeah, they're really going to miss us. That's righteousness too. A willingness to share in the shame of the one whose life we are committed to no matter what. And my guess is that some of you can, can surmise the second reason God chose Joseph to father his child. Because Joseph's heart not only reflected the righteousness of God the Father, but reflects the heart of God the Son as well. I mean, what better earthly father for Jesus than a man who determined to share in the shame of the one of his beloved, no matter what the cost to him personally. It says the angel told Jesus that this was not going to be an ordinary child, that the Son of God in the flesh was going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that is significant. Because you see, the real miracle of Christmas is not just that God chose to send his son to this earth, but that Jesus, the Christ, came for one reason. To share in our shame so that we may be completely forgiven and healed and welcomed into his family. See, as humans, we are, we are born into sin or, or disgrace, like Mary. Every, every one of us has had our hand up the skirt of the Coke machine, as it were, Okay? Scripture actually says there is not one without sin. No one. (laughs) From our petty offenses as kids all the way up to our more selfish manipulations as adults, I mean, we are sinful people, right? You can argue that, you know, but seeking our our best interests above all others, slandering, gossiping, lusting, hating, betraying, manipulating, you name it, we got it in this room. That's not being judgmental. That is just fact. (laughs) That's being honest. And the consequences of our sin, literally, is death. That's what justice prescribes, stoning. That's why it's good God himself does not keep a rock collection. Rather, out of his love, he is search, out of his righteousness, he is searching for a way to be just and loving to every one of his wayward children. And so at Christmas, he sends his only son, Jesus, who was sinless, to save us, to share in our shame. As a boy, Jesus would be born in a cradle, but as a man, he would die on a cross in our place. And that was a purpose of his entire life, to show God's love in the shadow of his justice. He actually entered the tangled mess of humanity for the express purpose of experiencing all the struggles, all the pain that we do every day, but was without sin. And on the cross, we're told, he took on all of our faults, all of our failings, paid the tab, went back, and literally shared in our shame. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the, what? Righteousness of God. There's that word again. See, on our own, folks, we don't have a chance of being completely righteous like our Heavenly Father. Completely just? I mean, have you done everything morally, perfectly, scrupulously in your life? I mean, come on. Get real. Even my brother would be like, no. (laughs) Completely loving? Have you loved everyone perfectly? No. And so to satisfy the demands of justice that, you know what, there are deadly consequences for sin. God says, I will take the penalty, the punishment, on myself. Because my justice demands payment, but out of my love, I will go back and pay their debt. I will absorb their punishment in their place, and I will do it through my son, Jesus, the Christ. That's what Christmas is. God sending a savior into this world to save you and to save me, and you will give him the name Jesus. And through faith in in what my boy is going to do, you will become righteous. Or like God in our character. That's what saving faith is. You know, you know what? I mean, people make faith complicated. You know what faith is? Faith is a simple admission that, you know what? I can't do this myself. 
That no matter how good a person I try to be or, or, or I think I am, I cannot eliminate this bent frame, this sinful nature that is present in every one of us. And that's why I need Jesus. That's literally what God told Joseph. She's going to give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he's Spanish. No. Because Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. They can't, they can't save themselves. They can't make good on the milk crate of empties they're carrying. And so I will pay the tab for them. I'm going to do what justice demands, but I'm going to pay the price myself. Exceptional love. That's who Jesus is. Your Savior. Sent by God to share in your shame and restore your life to what it was intended to be. That's Christmas. We're going to be closing. Would you turn quickly, though, to Isaiah 53? Because I want you to catch this. There's this amazing kind of cross passage. You'll notice that Isaiah is the, um, is the prophet who actually, um, where the name Emmanuel comes from, the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll see that in your footnotes there. But the birth of a Savior was foretold centuries before God tapped Joseph on the shoulder. And um, over in Isaiah 53, we're given a glimpse into the future of this baby, the one who would be born to Mary and Joseph, and what his future would hold. I want you to look at this. That's what a prophecy is. It's a foretelling kind of of what's going to happen. And Isaiah says, you're not just going to be calling me Manuel, but here's the deal. Look at Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 5. We'll look at the message paraphrase. This describes Jesus' destiny. It says, the servant, Jesus, grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him, and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains that he carried. Our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself. That God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him. That ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. Stop there. Through his bruises, we get healed. Folks, in sharing Mary's shame, Joseph reveals he is no ordinary Joe. Jesus, in sharing our sin and our shame, shows us he is no ordinary savior. There is nothing ordinary about the Christian faith, folks. It is extraordinary. Because unlike every other world religion, at the center of the Christian faith is a God who has come in the flesh to this world not to dominate or rule over or coerce or punish, but to actually share our shame and identify with broken, sinful people. And he actually sent his very best, his son, not to punish us, but to actually take the punishment in our place. So when we see Jesus on the cross, we see, folks, when you look at the cross, you know what you think? <laughs> oh my gosh. Perfect justice, perfectly fulfilled, extraordinary love showered out upon us. Justice and love kissing at the cross. Is that what you believe? Is that something you have embraced as the truest of truths? That Jesus came and he came for me. Because I'm here to tell you today, a restored relationship with a righteous God is possible. There is forgiveness, there is healing, and there is restoration. No matter where you've come from, what you've done, you can be forgiven and embraced by God. He loves you. As, as fully and as perfectly as only a righteous father can. And he has sent Jesus to be your savior. Have you embraced that for yourself? It's not hard to do. You just simply ask God. You say, I, I, I want to embrace you. In fact, let's, take, let's bow our heads. You take time. You can talk with God even now in this moment. There's no magic formula, no certain words you have to say. It's just, God, I believe that I am broken, that I, I do blow it. And I am not you, and I need you. I need a Savior. And I believe Jesus was that Savior. I believe at Christmas that he was born for me and that he died for me. And Jesus, I want you in my life. Be my God.
we're told that simple expression of faith opens up the family of God to anyone, no matter what you have done, no matter where you are. And the incredible thing is to think, God chose two teenage kids (laughs) who were nothing but obedient to open that way for you. He's moving. You've never really told me of your dream. A dream? No, please. Tell me. The angel came to me. He told me the child within you had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. But I should not be afraid. Are you afraid? Yes. Are you? Yes. <laughs> Do you ever wonder when we'll know? No, no one. When he's more than just a child. Will it be something he says? A look in his eye? I hope you've seen that Joseph is no ordinary Joe. He's not a bit player in the Christmas story. My wife and I uh, rented Superman Returns. came out this week on DVD. We rented this thing and never seen it. And there's a scene in it that while this is churning in my head, I'm watching this scene where Superman, Clark Kent, sent to this world. The father sends Kyle, sells a, sends a son. And he's there, and he's at the dinner table with this elderly woman in Kansas or wherever it is, Oklahoma, in the Midwest. And she's going to be his earthly mom. And she's handing Superman like a bowl of macaroni. (laughs) And the next thing you see him literally, you know, stopping speeding bullets faster than a train, you know. What was it like for Joseph to be told that he will be raising literally a Superman son? whose life was destined to save the world. You will be the father, the earthly caretaker of the savior of the world. You can't even imagine the responsibility. You can't even imagine the privilege. Why Joseph? Folks, I believe God chose him because his life reflected two of the core attributes of the heart of our heavenly father and of Christ himself. Joseph was a righteous man. Could that be said of you? highest integrity tempered with love, kindness in the shadow of brokenness, but like Jesus, the son, he was willing to share in our shame. The perfect earthly example to give his son, who would one day sacrifice himself to pay for our sins, to carry our burdens, our disabilities, and to give us new life. You know, maybe, maybe his life only had a handful of verses in scripture, but man, did Joseph make a lot out of his 15 minutes of fame? Because <laughs> you see a supernatural love there. Like father like son.